I want to minister for a little while on this Resurrection Sunday morning through a message that I'm calling The Curtain, His Body. Today we celebrate a risen Savior. His name is Jesus. And what a beautiful name His name is. And I've come by today to put us in remembrance of the finished work of the cross, that the cross worked, that the grave worked, And because of that, we can have a hope that the world doesn't have. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was buried. But three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And you know what he did? He dealt with our sin problem. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for us. And he dealt with our sin problem. And he cleansed us of our sin, listen to me carefully, once for all. His blood was so precious that by one sacrifice, the Bible says, he made us perfect forever. And I love that. And so what I want you to see through the message today is this. It took the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus to bond us to the heart of the Father. One without the other equals no salvation. If you have a crucifixion and no resurrection, you don't have a salvation. You are lost in your sins. Inasmuch as it takes grace and faith to become a new creation in Christ, and that's what the Scriptures tell us. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. Likewise, it also took a cross and an empty grave to make a new and living way for salvation, a salvation that would eternally clothe us in righteousness. Under the old covenant, a man's sins and annual sacrifices were just a constant reminder of his sins. They were a constant reminder of his failure. Under the new covenant, the cross and an empty tomb are a constant reminder. It's a sweet smell and savor in the nostrils of God that he has dealt with our sin problem once and for all. Our sins have been forgiven and he remembers our sins no more. Now, it's sad to say, but many believers live their entire Christian lives trapped in a failure mindset. I call it a Mephibosheth mindset. They are trapped in this mindset. I'm talking about an old covenant mindset that, like robocalls, solicits their hearts with unwanted and unnecessary offers. Ever since Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, humanity has wrestled with separation anxiety. That's where it began. And As I've coursed my way through my 60 years of life, I don't know as though I've ever met a child that didn't go through some form of separation anxiety. If you were to take a one-month-old child and just lay him in the hands of your friend and then walk out of that room, that child would have no problem with that. If you were to take a two-month-old child and lay him in the hands of a relative and then say, goodbye, I'm leaving, that child would have no problem with that. You could take a three-month-old child and put him in the hands of a homeless man on a corner and walk away, and that child wouldn't probably have any problem with that. Once that child grows to be about six months of age, somewhere in that neighborhood, when that child begins to see you leave a room, suddenly, come on, mamas, talk to me about this now. When that child sees you starting to leave a place, there's a separation anxiety that begins to rise up. That child has become so accustomed to seeing you. He's been so accustomed to hearing your voice that when that face is no longer there, that voice is no longer there, he or she begins to go through separation anxiety. It's terrifying, to be honest with you. It's frightening. And many people, listen to me carefully, never grow out of it. And many believers live in a constant state of disorder and panic. They are fearful that they have already or that they could potentially cross some sort of imaginary line that would take them beyond the provision of the curtain, his body. Friends, let me tell you something. The cross, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and the revelation of the new covenant of grace is more than just therapy for separation anxiety. They are the bonding agents of the Spirit of grace, and they activate this new and living way of worshiping God and knowing God. Now, I want to take you all the way back to the beginning of time. God creates a perfect world. Everything about it is absolutely perfect. There is no defect. And on that last day, He makes a man. His name is Adam. 
And the Bible says that he breathes into Adam the breath of life and Adam stands up on his feet and he sees God. He sees a form. He sees the spirit of God and he begins to worship the father because that's his father. He was created by father and he stands up and he begins to worship the father. Adam was perfect. Adam had no defect. Adam wasn't born a sinner. Adam was created perfect perfect DNA. He had perfect thoughts. Everything about that man was absolutely perfect. And the Bible says that God would come down in the cool of the day and he would walk with Adam. They would go on a journey. I don't know what that exactly looked like. Could he see God in this form? Were they just balls of light? I don't know exactly what that looked like. The scriptures aren't real clear. But the fact of the matter is, Adam knew that God was present and God knew that Adam was present and they would walk together and guess what they would do? They would have fun. They would have fellowship. They were getting to know each other. They were just spending time with one another. It's not even about just someone always talking. It's just about being in someone's presence sometimes that just satisfies your heart. God walked Adam into the middle of the garden one day and he said, Adam, I want you to take a look at these two trees. Do you see them, Adam? One of them I call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the other one I call the tree of life. Do you see them, Adam? They don't look like each other, do they? Adam, you'll never make a mistake here. You'll never do this on accident here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks different than the tree of life, doesn't it? Yes, it sure does. Now, Adam, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you are not to partake of. You can take from any other tree in the garden, but this tree is off limits. You cannot partake from this tree. So Adam clearly understood the instructions. I can understand sometimes. Men, we get directions, right? Uh, we don't like to stop for directions, but occasionally we will. And when someone tells you left here, right there, straight here, three blocks there, turn at this, turn at that, I understand we can get a little confused, right? But Adam was not confused. Adam knew exactly what that tree was. Son, he says, you cannot eat from that tree right there. He said, for in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. What did Adam do? Adam, on the other hand, ate from that tree. And when Adam ate from that tree, the Bible says that his eyes were opened. His awareness was opened. And the first thing he did is he ran and hid himself. Think about this. He had never hid from God. He had never hid from the Father. But he runs and he hides and he makes fig leaves and he tries to cover everything. Do you see something has changed on the inside of Adam? And so God comes down to go for his nightly stroll in the cool of the day, it says. But it was a no call, no show for Adam in the business world. You'd lose your job for that, wouldn't you? Adam is hiding on God at this point in time. You know why? Because Adam is already experiencing separation anxiety. God cried out to him. He said, where are you, Adam? And guess what? It was just crickets. You could have heard a pin drop in the garden. He said, Adam, where are you? Adam had never been afraid a day in his life. Suddenly he's dealing with fear. I'm telling you what, friends, fear is paralyzing this world. Fear is paralyzing this nation. I'm not talking just since COVID, but I'm talking before that because people don't know who they are and they don't realize how good this father is. And every time they blow it in thought, word, or deed, they think, wow, I disappointed the father. Listen, you can't disappoint God. You know what disappointment is? Disappointment is unfailed or unmet expectation. God has already looked down a timeline. He has seen everything that you will ever do in your life. He has seen every thought you'll ever have, every word that comes out of your mouth. God has already been there and back. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's all of that. You're not going to disappoint him. That doesn't mean he likes everything we do. Why? I don't like everything my kids do. Do you like everything your kids do? Of course not. But that doesn't mean we quit loving them. That doesn't mean we disconnect from them. You're not going to disappoint God. God is saying, Adam, where are you? Let me ask the question. Had God misplaced Adam? You ever lose stuff? Your car keys, whatever they may be. 
I've heard it said, and I believe it. On average, a person spends two years of their entire life looking for stuff. If you were just to add up, I spent 10 minutes looking for my keys. I spent five minutes looking for that dish. I spent 10 minutes looking for my shoes. Five minutes looking for that dress. We spend two years of our life looking for stuff. That's why when I hang my suits in the closet, I hang them in alphabetical order because they're in bags. I don't want to take one down and zip it down and go, oh, that's not the suit I'm looking for. So it's black, blue, green, gray. I know exactly which one to pull off of there. I don't want to spend any more time looking for stuff than I have to. Yeah, amen. So God comes down. He says, Adam, where are you? Now, can you imagine the father? Where, where, where are you, Adam? Had God misplaced Adam? No, he didn't misplace Adam. Let me ask you another question. Did Adam camouflage himself so well that he blended in with the fig trees? You know, he sewed fig leaves together. Maybe he just looks like part of the tree. Did he camouflage himself so well that he just blended in so well that God had to say, <laughs> Where are you, Adam? That's silly, isn't it? Let me show you a scripture in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 24. It says, Can any man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, saith the Lord? <laughs> isn't that amazing scripture? You see what God is asking there? He says, Man, you can do all the hiding you want. Listen, there'll be Easter eggs that won't be found today because they were hid too complicated for the little kids, right? And you'll discover them in the house maybe about six months later when you say, what is that awful smell coming out of this home? You hit it too well. But God said, can any man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. God knew exactly where Adam was hiding. When God said, Adam, where are you? He wasn't talking about Adam's location. He was talking about Adam's mutation. You see, through disobedience, Adam changed. Adam mutated. Adam had separated himself from God. You say, Pastor Mark, that's the problem. That's the part that frightens me. If Adam mutated when he sinned, if Adam became a sinner when he sinned, then what hope do I have? Well, the answer to that question really is quite simple, friends. Adam was under a conditional covenant. What was the condition of his covenant? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, you cannot eat from that tree, Adam. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So there was a condition to that covenant. Do you see that condition? God said, Adam, I'm going to show you where it's at so that you know. You can't plead ignorance with me later on. I'm going to show you exactly where it's at. There's no other tree that looks like it. And I'm telling you in advance, Adam, the day you eat of that, you shall surely die. Adam was under a conditional covenant. God forbade Adam to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God attached a condition to life, not just to the tree. He attached a condition to life as Adam knew life. Now think about it. Adam doesn't know anything about death. Nothing has died up to this point. No, animals have died. Flowers haven't even died. Nothing has died up to this point. Have you ever noticed when your kids are growing up and they ask you why? You tell them, don't do something. They say, why? <laughs> How many of you walk down this road? And you got to say, because I said so. Because I told you so, right? I mean, come on. We all said that. I almost got to the point where I didn't even want to say that. But it's the short route, right? You can take time to explain it. But how about we just go with, if Father said this, then Father knows best. Let's just not do it. So if God said, don't do it, Adam, then don't do it. You don't need to know. The condition was this. He said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, let me ask you a question. Was God being mean to Adam? <laughs> no, he wasn't being mean to Adam. God was keeping his promise. I love promise keepers. I don't know about you, but I love people that keep their word. When they tell you something, they fulfill the word. They keep the word. And God told him, Adam. The day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. God is a promise keeper. And we can be thankful for that. We can be happy that God keeps his promise, right? Absolutely. We can be happy that he keeps his promise. Now, Adam didn't die physically that day. It would be hundreds of years before Adam would physically die. But nevertheless, he experienced a death that day. He had mutated from rest to painful toil. He had mutated from authority to anxiety. 
It would take the last Adam, the one who would die on an old rugged cross, to come and restore humanity back to a state of rest and authority. Friends, let me tell you something. When we fail, we never have to play hide and seek with Papa, okay? We don't have to do that. The Bible says that we can boldly come to the throne of grace where we find mercy, where we find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't try to find a bush. We go to the throne of grace, right? And so through the crucifixion and resurrection, through the curtain, his body, we receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. As a result, we reign in life through this one man. Who is he? He is Jesus Christ. These truths are found in Romans chapter 5, and I want you to know something. The scriptures that you find in Romans chapter 5 have been considered some of the most difficult scriptures in the New Testament, not because of complicated language, but because of our religious brains. They just cannot comprehend this much grace. They cannot comprehend this much goodness because we're not used to this in the world that we live in. We're used to eye for eye and tooth for tooth and a dog-eat-dog world. We're not used to receiving grace when we've blown it, when we've failed. We're not used to receiving the goodness of man when we don't deserve it. One of the main stumbling blocks of the self-righteous man are these words. But where sin increased, grace did increase all the more. See, that doesn't make sense. That's a stumbling block. He said, where sin increased, grace, that is God's unmerited, undeserved, uncommon favor. Not because we deserve it. Friends, you've got to open up your heart. You've got to open up your mind and understand this powerful grace. And that's why so many scholars, so many people, so many religious folks have so much trouble with Romans chapter 5 is because, man, he just lays the grace on there. I don't know about you, but when I make a peanut butter sandwich, I don't like it spread thin, do you? I like to just heap it on there. I like to lay it on there. Put some jelly on top of that, right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, yes, you're going to blow it going through life. You're going to mess up going through life. He said, but when sin increases, he said, grace increases all the more. Isn't that awesome? See, because he's a promise keeper, right? He keeps his promises. This is in the word. This comes from the apostle Paul who got the revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Some of these scriptures, listen, I don't even have to open up a Bible and read these scriptures. I can just quote them verbatim to people. And I'll tell you what it makes the religious people lose their mind. Their little doggy brain just goes right out the window when they hear these things. They want to argue with you. Yeah, but. No, there's no yeah, but with God. It's a finished work. He said where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Do you see that? Grace just keeps abounding. It's a supernatural thing with God. Now, I'm going to read those scriptures for you just so you can see them yourself this morning. Friends, listen to me. This is what Easter's about. This is what Resurrection Day is about. It's about Christ coming out of the grave. But what was his heart? What was his motive? What did he do this for? So that his grace could abound. See, up to this point in time, we're under an old covenant. We're under a conditional covenant. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's the covenant we're under. And Jesus would come and say, I'm going to snap that covenant in two by my precious blood on the cross. Yeah, look at these scriptures now. They might make more sense to you. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Who is the one man? It's Adam, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Sin entered the world through one man. Oh, when I see Adam someday, man, I'm going to tell you, he's going to be easy to find, you know. He has no belly button. I'm the only one with no belly button. God fashioned him out of the dust of the ground. I'm going to love Adam. I really am. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, he was the portal, he was the opening that sin came through, one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned 
To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. What law are we talking about? We're talking about the Mosaic law. That would be 2,500 years from Adam. From Adam to Moses, 2,500 years. Yes, sin is in the world, of course. They're not under the Mosaic law. Yeah, but sin is still in the world. Adam's sin, it says here. It says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But look at these words. Friends, please underscore these in your heart this morning. Take these home with you. Look at these words. It says, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. In other words, what it literally means there is sin is not added to your ledger. I'm going to talk to the accounting people maybe that be listening to my voice today. You know what a ledger is. Your account's receivable. Your account's payable. And it says sin does not even enter that ledger when there is no law. It's not even on the books, friends. It says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Death, not hell, death. The penalty for sin is death. It says, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam. You see, the people after Adam, all the way up to Moses, were not under this same covenant that Adam was under. So they were sinning, yes, but they were not breaking the commands because they weren't giving the commands yet until Moses. Yes, they had a conscience, and they should listen to their conscience, but they didn't have a written command or a verbal command from God. But because of their sin, they would still die. From the time of Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come, but the gift, I love this part, the gift is not like the trespass. It says, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, so if many people died because of what Adam did, how much more, look at these words, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. So it lays Adam and his sin and all the humanity that it affected in one pile. And then it puts Jesus over here on a cross and it says, look, I'm going to show you how to really affect people. I'm going to show you how to reverse what Adam did through my blood. So he says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. See, that does just make sense to our minds. That one sin could do all this damage. He says, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification you know what that justification means? It literally means you've been declared innocent. You have been justified. You have been exonerated. Your sins have been wiped out, removed, expunged, deleted. Your sins no longer exist. He says, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. I love this. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. How did we become righteous? I heard Valerie talking about holiness earlier in the message where she's talking about it came through Jesus's body. Friends, same thing with righteousness. They're one in the same, really. You don't have one without the other. You pick up his righteousness, you have his holiness. If you have his holiness, believe me, you have his righteousness. You can't be holy apart from his righteousness. He says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. See, that would be like a guy spending a dollar and then $5 going into his account. And then you spend $10 and $50 goes into your account. It just keeps increasing. Do you see this? He said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, 
so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you and I are not under a conditional covenant. We are under the covenant of grace. This is a covenant that was cut between God the Father and the Son Jesus on the cross. That's not taught in a lot of the churches. They think it's the covenant between us and God. No, the covenant is between God and His Son. His Son is the one who shed the blood, right? His Son was the sacrifice. The covenant is between Father God and the Son. This covenant is not based upon our performance. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who would come and He would put an end to our pitiful sacrifices for sin through the curtain, His body. Now, I have not used this in a lot of years, but in preparation for this message, I was reminded of this right here. The men would know what this is probably right away by looking at it. That is epoxy, friends. Epoxy, one of the strongest glue. When you put two pieces of metal together and put this in between and push them together, I'm telling you what, you can lift thousands, sometimes even tens of thousands of pounds. How can a liquid become so strong? It's epoxy, friends. Do you notice in this tube here, you have one color that's kind of yellow and one that's more clear? That's because there's two different ingredients here. One is resin, the other one is hardener. One without the other, friends, is just a wet spot. That's all you get. And you have one plunger. And as you squeeze this plunger, equal amounts will come out this tube. And then you will mix them together. And you only have so much time to work with this epoxy. And then it will begin to set. So whatever you're gluing together, you only have so much time to do. And then once it sets together like that, over the next few hours, it will begin to cure. And here's the wonderful thing. It's in liquid form right now. But did you know that with epoxy, once it dries, it cannot return ever again, no matter what you do to it, to a liquid form. And here's the beautiful thing that I love about epoxy is it will tell you right on the package, once cured, it can never be uncured. <laughs> Do you see that, friends? In something so simple? Once this cures, it can never be uncured. See, the church doesn't like it when we say once saved, always saved. Well, they'll shut you off in a New York second, man. If you say once saved, always saved. <laughs> so over the years, I've kind of sidestepped that and I've just said something similar. I've said once his, always his. Then you'll get away with that one for a little while. But I've come by today to tell you once cured, you cannot be uncured. Once cured, you are always cured. What am I talking about? I'm talking about when God extracts your sin away from you. Once He takes that out of your spirit, once He takes that out of your nature, you cannot return to that form ever again. Once cured, always cured. You can never be uncured. It took the crucifixion and the resurrection to cure us from our sinful condition. Grace and faith are like the resin and hardener. Once cured, it can never be uncured. The curtain, His body, would take away our sin once for all. The blood and water that flowed from Jesus' body on the cross. Remember when the Roman stuck the spear in his side and he pulled it out. The Bible says there was a flow of water and blood that came out of his side. And guess what? Humanity would be drawn through that portal and we would have to pass through the water. We'd have to pass through the blood. Do you see this? And once we were cured coming through that, once our sin was extracted, once our nature was changed, we cannot ever be changed again. We are like Him forever and ever and ever. We would come ultimately through the blood and the water, washed and cleansed on the way in, forever forgiven, bonded with Jesus, cured once for all, made holy by His blood, made holy once for all, perfected once for all, and hidden in the secret place of Daddy's heart. Hidden in the secret place of Papa's heart. So God said, <laughs> Adam, where are you? He's still looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? I don't know how long this went on. The father's not there to play games. And at the same time, he's not there to beat his son up either, friends. 
Look, Adam would have been a wet spot if God would have been so angry at him. He would have just squashed him out at that moment. You would have been done. God would have said, I'm starting all over again. I'm not going to do this ever again. But no, the father wants to walk with Adam when he's blown it. And he says, Adam, where, where are you? Son, I'm looking for you. It's an interesting word because when God says, Adam, where? Are you where? That word where is I. It's just a y. It's I in the Hebrew. I, <laughs> Adam. I, well, like a pirate or some sort. I, Adam. Where are you? It literally in the Hebrew. If you look it up in the concordance, it literally translates as how or what. Now think about what God just said. He said, Adam, how are you, son? Doesn't that change everything? You see, I can ask anybody, where are you? That doesn't mean I want to have a relationship with them. But if I say, how are you? That's going to bring me up close and personal. I'm interested in you. Hey, Bob, how you doing today? No, God said, Adam, how are you? It literally means, Adam, what are you? Isn't this awesome? He says, Adam, how are you? Adam, what are you? And it's what we get out of that. It's so important in our relationship with Christ. In Christ, our how and our who and our what never changes. Once cured, always cured. When we blow it in word, thought, or deed, we need to ask the same questions of ourselves. How am I? Who am I? <laughs> what am I? The scriptures plainly tell us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are the redemption of God in Christ. We are the sanctification of God in Christ. We are the wisdom of God in Christ. That's who we are. The scriptures tell us that we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. The Bible says we are a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of God who have called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what we do when we blow it in thought, word, or deed. We draw back our attention to who am I? Not where am I? What am I? How am I? Well, these are who we are. This is how we are in Christ. This is the way the Father sees us. This is why Jesus came and hung on an old rugged cross so he could get us out from the old covenant that our position or the way we perceived ourselves was based upon where we were at in life. No, he's drawing it in tighter. He's making it come into the inside of you to say, how are you? Who are you? What are you, Adam? Friends, let me tell you something. The throne of grace never closes. The throne of grace is always open. Doesn't this add new meaning? Look, do I occasionally blow it in thought, word, or deed? Yes, and don't tell me you don't. We all do. 10, 15 years ago, you know what I would do? I'll tell you, it's no secret. I've said it before. I'd grab one of these, a box of Kleenex, and I'd find myself down at wherever I could kneel, bawling like crazy, wiping my eyes, blowing my nose until I felt better. And it was, there was this kind of like, I felt if I cried, then it meant I was sorry enough and I was repentant enough and then God would accept me and now I was fine. Now I could read my Bible. Now I could sing my Christian songs. Friend, this is nonsense. I don't care if you kneel down and pray and cry. That's fine. I was crying this morning, listening to music as I was being touched. I'm not talking about that. But listen, I know who I am. And I know how I am. And I know what I am. Even in the midst of less than perfect behavior. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? Man's separation anxiety can make about as much noise as a clothes dryer full of hammers. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I was thinking about that a couple nights ago and I thought, Lord, man, somehow our conscience talks to us and it's got this loud voice. And I thought, what would be the most obnoxious thing I could listen to? And the first thing that came to my mind would be a clothes dryer full of hammers. It would just sound awful. This is our conscience talking to us. Not because God is trying to condemn us. No, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Take that home with you, friends. Do you see that picture now? It would drive you crazy. Clothes dryer full of hammers. How does it sound to us, though? Oh, man, I failed again, the man exclaims as the hammers keep tumbling. 
How could the Father still love me, he ponders. It's a desperate and lonely feeling, friends. It's a dark feeling that many believers struggle with, but under the new covenant of grace, it is impossible to be separated from God. It's only an illusion. Please understand that. You can feel that way sometimes, but I'm telling you, it is an illusion. A magician has never sawed anybody in two, friends. It's an illusion. A magician has never really made anybody disappear. It's an illusion. That's all it is. And this is what our minds will do to us. It will fabricate magical little tricks and play tricks in our mind to make us feel like the Father doesn't love me. Oh, you've got to be drawn back to the Father saying, how you doing? <laughs> what you doing, Adam? But what do we want to do? Where have you been? <laughs> See how different it is? Under the new covenant of grace, it is impossible to be separated from God. It's only an illusion. Our how, our who, and our what never changes. The curtain, His body, provided a new and living way out of the desperation and condemnation and into His marvelous light, just like the Scriptures say. The curtain, His body, provided, listen to me carefully, a new and living way whereby we are declared not guilty. We are declared absolutely innocent. We are declared entirely righteous. We are declared thoroughly reconciled. Friends, I've got a newsflash for you. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Jesus didn't die for himself. He was sinless. Think about it. He didn't come and die for himself. And he didn't die for some inanimate object. He didn't die for that chair. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all humanity, friends. That's what the crucifixion and the resurrection are about. The crucifixion without the resurrection would have been a pyrrhic victory. I've said that word before. I don't say it very often, but it's a powerful word. I might have to spell it for you because this word you don't use very often. P-Y-R-R-H-I-C, a pyrrhic victory. The cross without the resurrection would be a pyrrhic victory. A demonstration of great love, yes, but no beneficiaries. <laughs> See, a man can die, but leave nothing for you. I want you to see the definition of a Pyrrhic victory, according to Merriam-Webster right there. A Pyrrhic victory is a victory that comes at a great cost, perhaps making the ordeal to win not worth it. And what it refers to is Pyrrhus. He was a Greek king, and in 279 B.C. he defeated the Romans, but he defeated the Romans at great cost, his own troops. Many of his high-ranking officials died during that battle. And so somebody would coin the phrase a Pyrrhic victory. In other words, let me see if I can draw some word pictures in your heart this morning. A Pyrrhic victory would be like a hungry man eating a poisonous meal. The belly is satisfied, but at great cost. It would be like a very thirsty man drinking ocean water. Oh, just for the moment, he's satisfied, but at great cost. It would be like a man who's freezing to death and he sees a grizzly bear and thinks, man, if I could just warm myself in his fur just for a moment. Oh, you might feel the warmth for just a second, but at great cost. A Pyrrhic victory is like a tourniquet around your neck to stop a head trauma. Oh, believe me, it will shut off the blood up here, friends, but at great cost to your own life. That's a Pyrrhic victory for you. A Pyrrhic victory could be something as simple as a man or a woman winning the lottery, having millions of dollars, and then their own children end up hating them. I've seen that actually happen. I've known cases where that has actually happened because money changed them so much. It took them from here to there, and it changed the way they thought about man, and I've seen it happen. There was a man, and he won the lottery. And I only know this story because a good friend of mine told me she flew an airplane. She was 90 years old. She was still flying an airplane. And there was a man that lived next to her who had won the lottery. He had won about $20 million. He said, I would love to see what this lake looks like from the air. Would you mind taking me up in your airplane, just flying me around so I could just kind of look at all this? She said, I'd be happy to do that for you. She took him up, buzzed all around the lake. And when they got done, he said, wow, that was a wonderful view. I've never seen this place from the air before. That was beautiful. I love that. He got out his wallet and he said, here's a hundred dollar bill for you. She said, I don't want your money. He said, well, you had to put fuel in this plane. Surely you want my money. Oh no, I don't want your money. 
He said, are you trying to tell me you don't want my money? She said, that's exactly right. He said, that's the strangest thing in the world. Everybody else does. He said, when I won the lottery a few years ago, he said, I gave a million dollars to my son. I gave a million dollars to my daughter, and it was the worst thing I'd ever done. They can't stand me. They hate my guts. That's a Pyrrhic victory, friends. You win, but at great cost. On December 10th of 2005, a DC-9 crashed upon approach to Nigerian airport. There were 109 people on board. There were only two survivors. One of those survivors was a 16-year-old girl by the name of Kechi Akwuchi. I want you to take a look at her at age 16. Isn't she a pretty girl? Absolutely. This is what she looked like before the accident. Now I want you to take a look at her at age 29. What you're looking at here is you're looking at a person that has already went through more than 100 operations by some of the world's finest top surgeons. More than 100 operations over the years. So you can only imagine what she looked like at first. That's a Pyrrhic victory in that catchy lived, but at great cost, great cost. When Jesus shed his blood on Calvary's cross, he not only died for us, but he died as us. He was shed his blood at great cost, the darling of heaven crucified. We sang about it this morning. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross served as what we call the propitiation. It's the atonement for sin of all humanity. Now, this may be a humbling thought for you, but I'm telling you, there's not been a man that's ever walked this earth that Jesus didn't die for. And that will help you, hopefully, in terms of how to treat people. I mean the worst of criminals. Jesus shed his blood just as much for them as he did for you and me, friends. He wasn't waiting for us to get all cleaned up and said, yeah, I'm going to shed my blood for that one and that one. They're all darlings. I'm going to shed my blood for that one. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a humbling thought, isn't it? Jesus lived a sinless life. He had a perfect life. He had a perfect death, a perfect burial, and a perfect resurrection. The blood of goats and bulls could not satisfy God. Obedience alone was inadequate. Observing the law was insufficient to satisfy God. Man would be declared righteous by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ apart from his own performance and his own adherence to the law. See, the religious people won't like that because they're all about do. They're all about where am I at in this journey? I should be further. I need to do more. No, you need to know who you are. You need to know what you are. You need to know how you are. That's more important. Now, a righteousness, listen to me carefully, because this is a little tricky. A righteousness that is not earned or maintained makes about as much sense to our natural minds as gaining weight through the consumption of a celery stick. Think about it for a second. We have become so accustomed to earning stuff. So to get something for absolute free, to get something that we didn't earn, that makes no sense to us. I was working with this lady one time. She said, you know, every time I eat a quarter pounder, I gain two pounds. My brain said, what? <laughs> what do you mean you eat a quarter pounder and gain two pounds? What are you talking about? How can that be? <laughs> well, friends, we're talking calories and, and how our body processes food. We're not talking about the weight of the item, okay? So now imagine you eat one little limb of a celery stick and you gain 10 pounds. That would make no sense. Well, to the religious mind, this makes no sense that we would receive such grace, such freedom, such love poured out from the Father. And I'll tell you why. It's because we're familiar in our Bibles with the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, it was man's responsibility to do good in order to get good. Under the New Covenant, Jesus did good, so we get good. Because Jesus finished the work, we have become his finished work. It's a new and living way that was opened up for us at the curtain, his body. Now, I want you to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, and I'm going to read it from the Living Bible. But now God has shown us, look at these words, underscore them now, a different way. God has shown us a different way. So what is he talking about? Well, he must be talking about some other way. What was the other way? It was the old covenant. It was do good, get good, obey all my laws, and I'm going to bless you. And if you don't, I'm going to curse you. 
It was the arrangement they had. But it says, now God has shown us a different way to heaven. I love these words, not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way, though not new, really, for the scriptures told about it long ago. Now God says he will accept and acquit us, declare us not guilty if we trust Jesus Christ to take away our sins. Isn't that wonderful? And we all can be saved in this same way by coming to Christ, no matter who we are or what we have been like. Yes, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious ideal. Yet now God declares us not guilty of offending him if we trust in Jesus Christ, who in his kindness or in his grace freely takes away our sins. For God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. In this way, Christ's blood, faith. You can't even take credit for your faith. We got the faith from God, right? You can't even take credit for that. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. So it's His blood, our faith. For God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to end all of God's anger against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from His wrath. Now look at these words again. Do you see the recurring theme here? In this way. In the same way. It's a different way. It's a new way. In this way, He was being entirely fair even though he did not punish those who sinned in former times, for he was looking forward to the time when Christ would come and take away those sins. And now, in these days, he can receive sinners in this same way, because Jesus took away their sins. But isn't this unfair for God to let criminals go free and say that they are innocent? No, for he does it on the basis of their trust in Jesus who took away their sins. Isn't that awesome? Then what can we boast about doing to earn our salvation? Look at those humbling words. Nothing at all. You get no bragging rights whatsoever. Nothing. Nothing at all. And then he asks the question, why? Because our acquittal is not based on our good deeds. It's based on what Christ has done and our faith in him so it is that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things we do. Man, these scriptures plainly tell us that we are not justified through the good things we do. We are not made righteous by the good things we do. We are not rendered holy by the good things we do. We are not declared innocent by the good things we do. We are not pulled from the wreckage by the good things we do. We are not saved by the good things we do. So let me ask the question. Here's the tricky part now. If we don't receive salvation through the good things we do, then why would it be our responsibility to maintain our salvation through the good things we do? Kind of a play on words there. But what we're saying is, if this gift comes absolutely free, nothing I did to earn this gift, nothing I did to warrant this gift, then why is it that I have to maintain this gift, this priceless gift? Why is it that I've got to work my fingers to the bone in order to keep this gift? Well, <laughs> we don't. We don't. Remember, it's a new and living way, just like the Scripture said. Friends, the Scriptures have plainly spoken to us and revealed that we are saved by a different way. That way is Jesus Christ. He is the way, not a way. And we have been saved through the curtain, His body. Through Him, we are given new birth into a living hope. The veil that once separated man from the Holy of Holies has been torn. How did it get torn? It got torn from heaven, from top to bottom. This is symbolic of the curtain, his body. That's all it's symbolic of. You say, Pastor Mark, wait a minute. And my mother used to say it like this. Hold your horses. Did you ever say that to your kids? Wait, hey, wait a second now. Hold your horses. Not so fast. Wait a minute. Wait a minute now, Mark. Let's see if I can trip you up here. If someone were to give me a brand new Rolls Royce as a gift. Very expensive car. It would still be up to me to keep it from getting rusty, to keep it from getting stolen, to keep it from getting destroyed. Would you agree with that statement, Mark? Yes, I'd agree with that statement. In the natural, yes. 
but we are no longer mere natural beings. We are supernatural creations in Christ. We are not just natural beings anymore. We are supernatural in Christ. The Bible says old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're supernatural in Christ. Look at these scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are no longer just natural. Your natural man has passed away. You are a supernatural creation in Christ. Is that what the scripture says? Old things, your old nature. Your old man has passed away. You are a supernatural being in Christ. And all things are of God who have reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I love this. Not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made. It's a finished work, friends. We might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that wonderful? Friends, let me tell you something. Let me just summarize. We've been pulled from the wreckage of our own way, and we have been recreated as new creations in Christ through a new and living way that is the curtain, his body. Again, we are no longer mere natural beings. We are supernatural creations in Christ. You see, when a baby is in his mother's womb, that baby doesn't provide anything for himself. All the nourishment comes through the umbilical cord. All the waste is taken away through the umbilical cord. Everything for that baby is supplied by the mother. That baby does nothing for himself. He's oxygenated through that umbilical cord. Everything is provided. You see, the scriptures tell us that the branches do not support the root. The root supports the branches. Jesus himself said, look, it's the root that supports the branches. It's the creator who supports the creation. It's not the creation who supports the creator. That's what religion will do. Religion will say, you know what? All of God's creation, we need to support the creator. No, the creator supports you. You are tied to his umbilical cord. It's called Jesus Christ. It's called the spirit of grace. It's called life. The scriptures may not guarantee, friends, that your Rolls Royce won't be stolen. I can't find that in the Bible. I, I looked for it, but it wasn't there. It can't tell you it won't be stolen. It can't tell you it won't get rusty. It can't tell you, friends, that it won't be destroyed. But the scriptures do guarantee us that the gift of eternal life is kept in heaven for us so that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And that's your salvation. The curtain, his body will never be torn again by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Look at these words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Jesus is talking, friends. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. They might get your Rolls Royce, friends. He said, but I've got a better idea. He said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Peter would say it a different way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says it pretty much the same thing a different way. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at these words. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And then he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that beautiful? Without his death, without his burial, Without his resurrection, there would be no hope. There would be no salvation. There would be no new and living way. There would be no once cured, always cured. We would be like sheep without a shepherd. Our lives would be a doomed flight that ends in broken pieces, billowing smoke and scattered across the runway of life. That's what your life would look like. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we are given eternal life. A life that Peter said never perishes. 
never spoils, never fades, a life that can never be snatched from us. Very important. A life whereby we become not just in God, but we become one with God. We are one with the Godhead, friends. A life that is kept in heaven for us. Why? So we can't ruin it. So nothing else can ruin it. A life that is far greater than all the whatsoevers and all the whosoevers. John chapter 10. I want you to see these scriptures from Jesus. Verses 14 and 15 and then verses 27 through 30. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. That's life without beginning and life without end, friends. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Isn't that what Peter said? He said, he's going to give you something that's kept in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade. Jesus said, I'm going to give them life that can never perish. And then I love what he says here. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. I want you to make note. I made that word all real big because I wanted to make a point with that. He said, my Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When you look up that word all in the Greek, it is the Greek word pas, P-A-S. Do you know what it means? It means whatsoever, whosoever. And then now when you read this scripture, it says, he is greater than all the whatsoevers. He is greater than all the whosoevers. I'm telling you, friends, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of my daddy's hand. Why? Because my father is greater than all the whatsoevers. He's greater than all the whosoevers. And the last time I checked, everything is a whatsoever or a whosoever, right? That chair is a whatsoever. Treva, you're a whosoever. Bob, you're a whosoever. That's a whatsoever. That's a whatsoever. He said, my father is greater than all. Didn't you wonder at one time why he didn't seem like he finished that sentence? He didn't say, my father is greater than all the demons. My father is greater than all the corruption. No, he just said, my father is greater than all. But it literally means all the whatsoevers, all the whosoevers. My daddy is greater than them all. Friends, I want to tell you something. There was a whatsoever that took Adam out of the hands of his father. Why? Because Adam was under a conditional covenant. You and I are not under that covenant today. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Under the new covenant, we don't need to be concerned about the whosoevers and the whatsoevers. Jesus said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is the confidence we possess through the curtain, His body. My closing scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. I love these scriptures because this is really the crescendo of what Christ did for us on the cross. Friends, I don't know as though Anything will take away condemnation better than those scriptures you're looking at. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. Friends, please. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful truth? You know what I just saw in my head when I looked at that? I don't know. This is just me. How many of you know what a pogo stick is? <laughs> you ever get on one of those things? Pogo stick, I've been on once when I was a kid probably. I just saw myself just now on a pogo stick, just having a good old time, just having a field day with that scripture right there. Because it says, look, there's sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. The pogo stick used to make me happy, just jumping up and down, moving all around, thinking I was really doing something. In my heart, my heart is like a pogo stick that is just jumping up and down, declaring my sins and my lawless acts, my lawless deeds. My father will remember no more. Powerful, man. And where these have been forgiven, look at that what he says, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He says, all right, stop it, friends. Quit coming to the altar and begging and pleading with God to take away your sins. Your sins have been taken away. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, they've all been taken away at the cross. 
Isn't that what even John the Baptist said? Did he say that? He sure did. He said, behold, look at this man coming. See him right there? That's my cousin. He, but he's more than that. That is the Savior of the world. I want you to behold the man. I want you to behold the Christ. I want you to behold the one who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, he would go on to call him. He'd say, behold the Lamb of God. Who had ever heard something like that before? The Lamb that would get sacrificed on the cross for your sin. He said, behold that Lamb. Look at Him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later on, He would say, my Father is greater than all, all the whatsoevers, all the whosoevers. And nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Why? Your sin has been dealt with. It's been dealt a death blow, friends. It says, there's sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. That means sacrifice on his part, and it also means sacrifice on your part. Sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. When we blow it, what do we do? Come on. When we blow it, there's nothing wrong with being sorry, friends. There's nothing wrong with saying, Daddy, I'm sorry. Daddy, cleanse my heart. This is not who I really am. There's nothing wrong with that. But your sins have been taken away. And you just thank Him to say, Father, I thank You that my sins have all been carried away. My sins have been taken away. I bear them no more. And Father, by the sweet power of the Spirit of grace, help me to make better decisions. Help me to be thoughtful, to think before we speak. And the Bible says, don't let any unwholesome communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is for the use of edifying, that it might minister grace to the listener. It's saying, listen, when you speak over somebody, when you talk to another person, be thoughtful about your words, that your words might minister grace to the person you're speaking to. I used to look at that scripture and think it was saying, don't cuss. You know, listen, friends, it's beyond cussing. It's just saying, look, let every word be seasoned with grace. Let be seasoned with grace. Be thoughtful about that. Be quick to listen, the Bible says, and slow to speak. Now, as we're looking at these scriptures, you can see your sin problem has been dealt with, right? There are sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. And he's saying, because they've been dealt with, don't have to worry about your sacrifices anymore. You don't have to bring lambs to the temple anymore. Because why? Because of the curtain, his body. Your sins are forgiven. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the next set of scriptures, my last scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, look at those words, by a new and living way. It's comparing it to an old and dead way. It says, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. That was the inspiration for this message, friend. As I began to meditate on the fact that his body would be sufficient on a cross and his body would be ripped, symbolic of that veil being torn. Everything that was hidden in the Holy of Holies now suddenly would be placed on the inside of us. Do you see this? By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. See, not our sin, just a guilty conscience. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, we can put Jesus on the cross at Easter and we can take him off. We can put him in a sepulcher and we can bring him out. But eventually we've got to get around to asking the question, why did Jesus give his life? What was it all about? Friends, Jesus gave his life because he loved us. He loved us. Jesus gave his life because the right moment of time had come. A time to render the old covenant obsolete. How did Jesus render the old covenant obsolete, you ask? I'm happy to tell you. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the Resurrection Day message are these. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection bond us to the heart of the Father by grace through faith. Once cured, we can never be uncured. The work is finished. 
His sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse us from all sin once for all. The manless cross and the empty tomb are reminders that our Savior triumphed victoriously over the cross and the grave. In the same way, the Bible says we were crucified with Him, we were buried with Him in baptism, and we were raised in resurrection life and power. Our sins and lawless deeds He remembers no more. It wasn't through the blood of bulls and goats that we were redeemed, but it was through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we entered the most holy place. We came through the curtain, that is, His body. It's a new way. It's a different way. It's a better way. It's the only way. It's a living way. In fact, it's the same way for every whosoever and whatsoever that will call on the name of Jesus. We never have to be terrified. We never have to be frightened by the robocall of the old covenant that solicits our heart with obsolete and unwanted offers. We need not play hide and seek with the Father when we fail. We can boldly approach the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Separation anxiety cannot dwell in the presence of this revelation. You want to know what the revelation is? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I'm telling you, when that truth, when that revelation, when that reality becomes so real to you, you'll find that separation anxiety is something of the past. It cannot exist in the presence of that truth any more than darkness can exist in the presence of light. Cannot happen. We need not be concerned about losing our salvation. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation it will never rust out. It will never wear out. It will never strike out. It can never be torn out. And our salvation can never be plucked out of our Father's hand. Friends, that's the message that the body of Christ needs to hear on Resurrection Day. A message that revives our heart. A message that promotes a new and living wave whereby we are declared not guilty. We are declared absolutely innocent. We are declared entirely righteous. And we are declared thoroughly reconciled. How did this happen, you ask? Well, let's set aside our viewpoints for a moment. Let's set aside our own opinions. Let's set aside even our own doctrine just for a moment. And let's let the Scriptures speak for themselves. We have been declared innocent through the curtain, His body, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daddy, I want to thank you for the priceless gift that you gave us. It was Jesus who hung on an old rugged cross. And there as our Savior died and bled for the whole world. It would be the cross and the resurrection that would ultimately bring about salvation. One without the other would have been a Pyrrhic victory. I want to thank you, Father, that we stand in Christ. As the Scriptures have said, all of our sins and lawless deeds, you remember no more, friends. Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you as this revelation of your love is just growing and taking root in our hearts and proliferating and just becoming so real to us that it takes separation anxiety and it takes it for a long walk on a short pier and it just lets go of it. I want to thank you, Father, that we have an advocate. We have the Holy Spirit so that when we do blow it, so that when we do fail in mind, in word, in thought, in deed, we can hear the words, Son, daughter, because of what my Son did for you on the cross, you are forgiven forever. Once cured, you cannot be uncured. You are mine forever. Nothing can pluck you out of my hand. Why? It all happened through the curtain, His body, in Jesus' name. Amen.